Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. I am William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. After a hiatus of several months due largely to the host's busy second semester schedule, Beyond Your News Feed is back. Over the next few weeks, we will be bringing you episodes on a number of interesting topics in the news. Uh, today, I have with me uh, Professor Ruth Benardsi, the Providence College Department's Middle East and International Relations expert, to talk about the turbulent politics of that region. We're going to do a uh, kind of uh, broad, uh, as they say, tour d'horizon uh, on this, uh, covering a lot of topics uh, ranging from uh, the recent Israeli elections from last Tuesday and the results of those, uh, to uh, the impact of the Trump presidency on Mideast politics and American relationships with the Mideast, and the differences that uh, we are, are likely to see uh, in the Biden administration. So without further ado, we'll begin our conversation with Professor Benardsi. Professor Benardsi, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you. I'm happy to join you again. Okay, I think we'll start with this very interesting Tuesday election. It's it's like the movie Groundhog Day. Uh, we've had four Israeli elections in the last two years, and pretty much the same thing keeps happening over and over again. Can you tell us a little something about that history, and then we'll get into the the weeds on uh, what happened on Tuesday and what the implications of that might be. Yeah, so so first of all, some of the people who are betting on the results of this elections are right now uh, um, putting their money on a fifth election. So we might have to do another podcast. Um, so that is a possibility. So what Israel Israel's um, electoral system is a parliamentary electoral system, and that and it's made up of many parties. It's a multi-party electoral system. Traditionally, until the 1970s, there were two large parties. Um, since then, the number of smaller parties has grown, which meant that uh, for to create a coalition, which creates then a government, um, the leading party, the party that gets the most votes or the most seats in the parliament, um, needs to sign deals with a few um, smaller parties. Uh, that makes the forming of a government, forming of a coalition, complicated. There are 120 seats uh, in the Israeli parliament, in the Knesset, and it, to create a government, a coalition needs to secure 61 seats. Um, so what happened two years ago, uh, it's, and then it's enough that one smaller party decides to withdraw from a coalition, uh, because it has some sort of a disagreement or differences uh, with the government, and it topples the entire government. And this is this is what happened a couple of years ago. There was a decision, and partly it was strategic on the part of Netanyahu because he thought it would be a good time for him uh, to go for an election. He actually thought that his support would increase at that point. Um, and there were uh, early elections called. So even two years ago, the first of these last four elections was not at the end of a full four year term. It was a little bit earlier than it was supposed to be. 
Um, since then, we've had we've had the last three elections until this just this last one on Tuesday uh, ended in a stalemate because no block was able to secure those stable 61 votes that would give them the stability to create to have a government that can last its full term or near its full term. Uh, and uh, and it's it, it's become kind of this cycle because every time there's elections, there's still 60 days of an opportunity for uh, for the party that gets the most recommendations by the most smaller parties, the most recommendations to form a coalition to try to do that. There's a 60 day period, that's a two months period for negotiations. The president of Israel, who is a uh, kind of a symbolic ceremonial figure, um, has the opportunity if he wants to then offer the opportunity to another leader of another party, maybe to, 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 to try to form a coalition if the first person was not successful. Um, and then if there's no success, it goes into uh, another election. The last election, there could have actually been a coalition that would, been, would have been rather stable, but Israel's internal divisions between ultra-Orthodox or religious and non-religious, between Arabs and Jews, between right and left, um, all of these different divisions created a situation, and then on top of that COVID, so this was just a year ago, right as COVID hit, created a situation where that leading party um, that people thought might be able to form a government caved in and decided to join with Netanyahu's Likud to form a unity government in order to address the emergency of the coronavirus. Uh, that, that was uh, Gantz and Netanyahu getting together. Yes, that was Gantz and Netanyahu getting together and Gantz did have an opportunity to create, he had it, there were enough small parties who would have formed a coalition with him to create a government without Netanyahu, without the Likud. He had that opportunity, but he balked at the last minute because he did not want to form a government that includes support from the Arab parties. That was the reason for that. So that was the issue, support from the that Arab parties. The only way you could have done it with support from the Arab parties, and he decided not to do that and instead go into a unity coalition with Netanyahu with the, the reasoning, some would say, and others would say the excuse of uh, being in a state of emergency of coronavirus and, and, and having to create a larger coalition that, is, uh, that unites uh, the two sides of the political aisle. And my understanding is that coalition didn't work very well. No. So for the coalition agreement was uh, was one that was very shaky to begin with. Um, it was manipulative. Um, Gantz did not necessarily get what he wanted. It, 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 at the end, he was supposed to be, he could have been prime minister first and somehow Netanyahu managed to manipulate him into uh, a rotation where Netanyahu gets to be prime minister first and Gantz gets to be prime minister second. All the pundits and the people who are paying attention uh, who uh, know a thing or two about Netanyahu uh, were quick to say that this is the kind of agreement that ensures that Gantz would never actually be prime minister. Um, and that uh, anybody who thinks that that rotation might actually happen uh, is not really paying attention uh, to Netanyahu's uh, political acrobats. Um, so, And in the end, uh, Gantz was never prime minister, right? Never prime minister. The rotation was supposed to happen in a few months. It was supposed to happen after 18 months. So we're now a year in. So the rotation should have been in six months. Um, so this was anticipated. These elections now 
with this timing before Gantz was supposed to be rotated into the premiership. Um, not a surprise. So now we're at, we have the fourth election on Tuesday. Uh, Gantz's party uh, dissolved, essentially. Uh, it really didn't compete. If, 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 if we had this conversation three days ago, um, I would have said Gantz's party dissolved and he completely obliterated his political future. And, um, you know, he just he was abandoned by most of his supporters because he ran on the platform last year of um, replacing Netanyahu. Um, Otherwise, his platform wasn't really clear. He's a former general. He was the chief of, of staff. He was he had a long career in the military. Um, his political ideology, for example, with regard to the occupied territories, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, even with regard to religious, uh, ultra-Orthodox um, uh, and non-religious relation, uh, um, um, relationship within Israel and the Arab-Israeli um, relationship within Israeli citizens within the 1967 borders within the Green Line, all of those positions are not really very well known. He has not made his ideological positions known. He ran on a platform that was kind of bland and that was really surrounded by his personality, him being somebody who was a little bit enigmatic, but because he was a general, uh, he was likable uh, or people saw him as somebody who could be a leader, who can be the prime minister. And he said that he will not join with Netanyahu, that he would not allow Netanyahu to become prime minister. Now, the, the big controversy around Netanyahu remaining in power is, first of all, he's been prime minister since 2009. There are no term limits in Israel. So he had already won, he, there were elections 2009, and then in um, 2000 and, um, uh, uh, sorry, 2013, 15, um, and, and now these last four elections. So he has been in power now for a very long time. In addition to that, he was also, uh, sorry, prominent prime minister. He was also prime minister from 1996 to uh, 1999. So he has been in the forefront of the political arena since 1999. That's the longest time in Israel's history. Uh, and, uh, and, and there were many politicians uh, and many voters who were feeling very uncomfortable with his kind of tight reign on the Israeli political system and institutions. That, in addition to corruption charges that were filed against him, and this is really what sealed the deal for many people, even in his own political camp, to campaign against him and to, uh, and to finally separate from him and say that he has to step down, he was indicted on charges of corruption and his trial already began. In two weeks, in fact, he's the, the evidentiary uh, stage of the trial is to begin, which means that um, three times a week, he would have to be in court listening to witnesses um, present evidence and being cross-examined, examined and cross-examined. So this is supposed to start two weeks from now. There's many stages in this trial and in the whole process, his legal process that have been delayed and delayed again and again. And that's also part of the strategy of the elections uh, is that every time there's a new election, he's trying to use that as a delay mechanism, a delay tactic on his trial. So the reason why there's even, there's this kind of rise up against him, even in his own political ideological camp is because of his legal situation. Uh, and because it was not just, it's we've now passed the stage of investigations, it's now an actual indictment, indictment by a government attorney who was appointed by him. Uh, so 
so this is this is the situation he finds himself. Of course, he criticizes any any anybody who supports or who claims that these invest that the that the indictment is legitimate or the investigations is, are legitimate. Um, he criticizes and attacks. The language he uses is language that would be very familiar to American listeners here. The language of fake news, the language that uses witch hunt against him. Um, so this is, he uses some of these same languages that language that we heard here to attack anybody who, uh, who tries to attack him on that front uh, even if there are ideological kins to him. Okay, so interesting situation on Tuesday. You have a prime minister who's on trial, uh, essentially, for corruption charges. Um, the person he ran against earlier, his party did not compete in this election, right? You Gantz, am I right about that? He is. No. So here's why, uh, yeah, and I didn't even finish the thread, why three days ago I would have said Gantz because he had joined with the Likud, angered his own voters. It seemed in the polls that he wasn't going to do well. His party is called Kacholavan, which means white and blue. Um, and it was not clear if he would pass the threshold to get in the Knesset and if he was going to pass the threshold. Um, uh, it was thought that he would barely pass. Um, so right now with 99% of the votes counted, he has eight seats. Eight seats is not a lot. It's a lot less than he had last time. However, it's a lot more than people have uh, predicted that he would get. So he still had some people who, um, some supporters uh, who especially stuck by him because in the last few months, he Although he, he he did join the Netanyahu government, he did prevent Netanyahu from pursuing some policies that would have made the situation worse, that would have secured a more powerful position for Netanyahu. He had he protected the Supreme Court, he protected the legal proceedings and the legal system, um, and he, he stood in the way of Netanyahu really pursuing his full agenda that he would have liked to pursue. So there are some voters who gave him credit for that. Okay, so let's let's focus on the Tuesday results as we have them now. Um, uh, if you kind of go over uh, uh, what happened in the election and uh, what the coalition uh, potential is. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of parties here, right, who won some seats in the Knesset. Yeah, so if kind of a very simple division of, of the parties, and there were different, you know, there were a couple of different themes that parties ran on. But this is um, maybe the most, in the most extreme way of the last of these four elections, the one that was most uh, distinctly uh, a, a pro Netanyahu against Netanyahu campaign. So despite the fact that there are many small parties, each of these parties also took a stance on whether they would join a Netanyahu government or will not or refuse to join a Netanyahu government. So this was really in some ways a referendum on Netanyahu. And in those parties, in some of those parties that said that they will not join a Netanyahu government whatsoever, the, some, of the, some in the camp of the anti-Netanyahu camp were actually, again, right-wing parties who would otherwise be um, uh, natural coalition members to the Likud and to Netanyahu. 
Um, so at the end of the count, it looks like there are solid 57 seats in the anti-Netanyahu block. And, and, that, and, and Ruth, yeah. if I could interrupt, uh, and in that block, there are left-wing and right-wing parties. That's what you exactly. just said, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so they're in that block there there's 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 not um the the really the most significant right wing party in that block is a and that was really the the one the 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 move that was the most detrimental to Netanyahu was that one of the senior members of the Likud who was seen as a potential prime minister at some point who has been part of the Likud his entire political career for the last 30 years Gidon Sar splintered a couple a few months ago from the Likud, took some Likud members with him in a move that was not at all an ideological separation from the Likud, but a discussed with Netanyahu and an anti-Netanyahu move. His party is called New Hope. Um, he received six seats, which is not a lot. The polls initially, it's a disappointment for him because the polls had showed uh, that he would get more seats. However, this was enough to bite away at what Netanyahu really wanted to have was a 61 seat majority, uh, enough, enough seats that would seal that deal for him. So New Hope is really uh, Likud B. It's the, the ideology is not any different than the Likud, except they ran on an anti, a, just an anti-Netanyahu platform. Um, so their ideological, um, uh, th they have no ideological um, commonalities with parties such as Merits, which is a left-wing party, or with a joint list, which is the joint Arab party. Um, under any other circumstances, you would not find those two part, those three parties, for example, in the same coalition. However, in this case, and now we're waiting to see if they're actually going to agree that to form a government around this one issue of removing Netanyahu from the premiership. One of the things that they will have to decide because there is the pro-Netanyahu block is 52, uh, is 52 seats. So it's less than the anti-Netanyahu block. And there are 11 seats that are uh, on the balance. 11 seats that are not committed, not to the anti-Netanyahu block and not to the pro-Netanyahu block. One of them is a right-wing party and one of them is an, the Arab Islamist party. Um, so, uh, you know, this makes it even more interesting. Um, the, the, the extreme right-wing party, Yamina, uh, has seven seats and the Arab Islamist party has four seats together. They're 11. Neither of them is committed except one of the parties in Netanyahu's camp in the pro-Netanyahu block um, the most extreme right-wing one, the Religious Zionist Party, uh, that has fascist tones in it, um, or actually is a fascist party in effect, um, has already declared that it will not agree to, um, to have the Islamist party either join a coalition or even just support it without joining it. So that is, and, and they said that that is a red line for them. There's no way they're going to agree to that. The, the other party that's a right-wing party has been its leader has been a big rival of Netanyahu's uh, for many years now. And he himself has designs and hopes to be prime minister. So kind of the latest talk is what would happen? What would make that anti-Netanyahu block come together despite their big differences and form a coalition? One of the ideas that I've heard 
being floated is if all of these parties recommend for a for a for to form a coalition, which means to be a prime minister, one of the smaller parties, in fact, not the largest one, yes, Shatid on the left, uh, which is a center, center left party with 17 seats, because its leader is considered toxic by some of those on the right wing, although he's not particularly left wing, um, but that he would actually concede his leadership in that camp and agree that either Yamina, that undecided party with its right wing -wing party, right? The right wing party, yep. Or that Gantz, who never got to be prime minister, uh, but nobody really knows if he's on the left or right because he joined with Netanyahu. He has seven seats, um, oh, sorry, eight seats, perhaps they would all agree to recommend him to be prime minister and that they would be okay with that, that he would, he's kind of the glue that would put them all together. Okay. So that is a possibility. And it would be a first in Israel's history that a party that only receives eight seats, its leader actually becomes prime minister rather than a leader of a party that's one of the largest parties. Sounds to me like putting together that coalition would be very difficult though with the ideological differences. But but in, in, in effect, if this seven seats in this uncommitted right-wing party would join the anti-Netanyahu bloc, they they would have the prime they, they would have a majority, right? Yes. So, so yes. it's 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 conceivable. Or even if just the Islamic party. So even if the seven seats of the of the of the of the right wing party joins Netanyahu, it's still not enough for him. He actually needs both the Islamist and uh, what he's trying to do, which is what he succeeded in doing last time in the last round a year ago. And this is allowed in this in the form of in the electoral process in Israel is to snatch away members of parties who got in and to have them shift, to have them to have them splinter away from their party and shift to his camp. So he could look at some of the specific members in these specific lists of the anti-Netanyahu bloc and try to convince them to come and rejoin him. At this point, it's been with four rounds of, of elections, it's so hard to move. People have already have these formed positions uh, that it he managed to do it last time, but he's much less likely to manage to do it this time. Right, so it, it strikes me that Netanyahu might be in some danger here because if this very difficult anti-Netanyahu coalition did gain power, uh, even though it'd be extremely unstable, like any one of these parties could bring it down by pulling out, right? Could they hold power long enough so that perhaps Likud would um, ease Netanyahu out of Likud leadership? In other words, Netanyahu would be eased out of power. And then another election in perhaps without Netanyahu might be possible. Is that yes. a, is that a conceivable that, scenario or am I just yeah, uh, No, you're 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 saying exactly what they are saying, uh, except you're even being a little bit more um uh, generous in your in your description of kind of like easing Netanyahu out. Uh, what some uh, in those parties are saying is that at least they can get together 
to, because they are, they're going to be seated as members of Knesset, whether a coalition is formed or not, this is how the new parliament is looking like. So that means that they can pass legislation and they can pass legislation, for example, and this is, and this has been talked about now for over a year, legislation that prevents, that makes it illegal for a member of parliament who is indicted in corruption to run for prime minister. Okay. So it's enough that they pass legislation like that, it would make it illegal for Netanyahu to run. And that is one of the things, you know, one of those discussions that are out there is how do you kind of shake him out of the Likud to make the Likud non-toxic uh, for some of these right-wing uh, parties to kind of take off his stronghold on the Likud. In just ideological terms, though, it looks like, I mean, all these recent elections are indicating uh, sort of a right-wing tilt to Israeli politics. You know, all the concerns about yes. Netanyahu's side, uh, we have a, yes. a society that's sort of leaning very much to the right. Is that? Very much, very, very much to the right. And I think the most important one, the kind of the most significant development to point out, which in some ways is not surprising, but now it's kind of, it's bonafide, made legitimate, is the religious Zionist party that received, uh, it looks like six seats. Um, that's um, not just an extreme right-wing party. Um, it is uh, uh, a party that is led by the disciples of Rabbi Kahana, who in the 1980s formed a movement that was called Jewish Power and his whole movement, Kahanism, created a political party. He's actually an American from Brooklyn who immigrated to Israel uh, and brought this ideology to Israel. Uh, he was very much openly anti-Arab, anti-Muslim. He supported a transfer of Arabs outside of all the occupied territories and out of Israel. His policies were in fact so egregious that the Israeli uh, courts um, outlawed his party for uh, racism. Uh, his party was considered racist. Now his disciples who hold the same opinions are in the Knesset and that is very alarming. So the, so the prospects of any kind of negotiations with the planet Palestinians is really unlikely uh, given the, the character of Israeli politics right now. If there's gonna yes, be I, yeah, that is not, there. yeah, there's even the left-wing parties in this round did not run on a platform that discussed at all their position regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, there were demonstrations outside of the prime minister's house since the summer. They were kind of inspired by the uh, demonstrations, protests here in the United States following George uh, Floyd's murder. Um, so, uh, and those were protests to get Netanyahu out of office. And they joined both people on different sides of the political aisle who wanted Netanyahu out of office. And this is what they ran on. So there's, uh, it seems to be like th there's no appetite right now. Uh, and, and after a year of coronavirus and uh, with the kind of this long haul grip that Netanyahu has had in Israeli politics, it seems like um, the vast majority of Israelis want to first solve that issue and are completely not thinking about and not interested in any sort of um, progress when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good segue into uh, the Trump administration's impact on the Mideast, on Israeli politics. Uh, the Trump administration uh, claimed that uh, at least 
uh, Trump's uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, claimed that he was going to bring peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. That obviously did not happen. But I wonder if you could uh, just selectively uh, say something about uh, how the Trump administration uh, impacted uh, both Israeli politics, but also more broadly, uh, the politics of the region. Uh, and, and start wherever you think it's most fruitful. Um, okay, so yeah, that's a big question, but I'll kind of, I'll, I'll highlight the important, um, some important aspects. So it, in these four years of Trump, the landscape had changed and especially it's changed because Trump um, gave cover to uh, backsliding from democracy for Israel. Uh, and it gave cover to these regimes that uh, in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, um, that were uh, pursuing moves that were anti-democratic, human rights abuses, the Khashoggi um, uh, murder uh, by the Saudi uh, prince. Um, and they they kind of, they overlooked that. This was not a concern to the Trump administration. They took an approach, a transactional approach to everything that is happening in the Middle East. That played right into the hands of, uh, of authoritarian leaders or wannabe authoritarian leaders. Uh, it helped Netanyahu and actually Jared Kushner's, you mentioned Jared Kushner's plan for peace. Um, his you know plan of the century as, as it's called, uh, was exactly the plan that Netanyahu had. So, you know, Jared Kushner must have not spent very much time um, working on it because he basically just copy and pasted what was on Netanyahu's uh, laptop uh, and then presented it as his plan of the century by the Americans. Um, this was exactly the plan that the right wing in Israel and the Likud and led by Netanyahu had always had is to, to create this kind of impossible sort of little enclaves of Palestinian towns, uh, pretend to call it a Palestinian state although and give it some sort of autonomy, but it really wouldn't ever be a Palestinian state. Um, and, uh, and completely shake out any sort of leverage that the Palestinians uh, might have. And one of the ways in which they did it is by, by they, they dried out all support for Palestinians. They stopped the humanitarian aid. They stopped USAID's contribution to the Palestinians. UNRWA, the UN um, a refugee organization that was, um, that was funded, that was supporting the Palestinians, um, its funding was cut by the Trump administration. So they basically completely um, hung them to dry uh, and did not give the Palestinians any sort of voice in any of these negotiations. So even those negotiations, supposed negotiations for this plan of the century um, took place without Palestinian participation. Uh, so they were doomed to fail to begin with. What was unanticipated, what was unanticipated even by negotiators before, by the Obama administration before Trump, was the way in which the Gulf countries, the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, the way in which they would um, participate in, uh, in these endeavors that were led by Trump. Uh, and that is a very interesting, um, I think it's an interesting observation. I think um, to me, from, kind of from my vantage point, uh, I think that those countries have made a calculation at some point that it, it's better for them to negotiate or to normalize relationship with an Israel that is non-democratic, that is um, that is um, moving, shifting towards a uh, a, uh, a theocratic, a Jewish theocratic uh, government system that might end up being even authoritarian. That is better for them than fighting for Palestinian rights, because fighting for Palestinian rights, especially post. Um, 
2011, the so-called Arab Spring and the various uprisings in various places in the Middle East, that sort of gave them a pause. They want to avoid any sort of fight for human rights, fight for civil rights. They want to avoid any uh, shakeup in their own regimes. And so this was a way for them to bring the United States um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, the United States um, to support them, uh, to get closer to them, and also to sell weapons, and to bring uh, Israel to the table. So they basically kind of threw the Palestinians under the bus. But that uh, strategy is kind of uh, up in smoke now, isn't it, with the Biden administration? Yeah, the Biden administration um, is, well, it's, it's a little bit on the fence because it was the Abraham Accords, which were the accords that the Trump administration signed, had signed between Israel and um, the UAE and Bahrain, Morocco. The, it was very difficult. It's very difficult to be opposed to agreements that normalize relationship. We should point out that Israel was not at war with any of these countries. So this was not a hot war that was being solved and stopped by these accords. And these are also not peace accords. These are normalization accords. It means that um, diplomats would be exchanged. Uh, but we also have to remember that even before that, there was a relationship, even if sometimes not formal, between Israel and those countries. So it's not a huge difference, um, but, but it is definitely kind of putting it out there in the public that there's an official relationship between Israel and those countries. It's very hard to stand up against that. You're not gonna say, well, no, we don't want Israel to normalize relationship with, with, a, with its neighbors. Um, so the Biden administration um, is not opposed to it, but the Biden, the, the, the folks at the Biden administration who are following this and um, including at the State Department are very much aware. Uh, and I think this is one of the kind of the resetting of the American relationship with Saudi Arabia is a very important step uh, taken by uh, by Biden's administration, they're very much aware of the, the meaning behind those Abraham Accords and the ulterior motives that the players here had, that it's not just simply normalization agreements, but that they also come with, uh, for example, an arms deal that right now Biden's administration put on hold as it's re-examining it. Um, so, and, and it's going to be interesting to see what they end up doing with this arms deal that the Trump administration was committed to. Um, uh, part of that arms deal is connected to the war, the civil war in Yemen that Saudi Arabia was involved with. I think it was a significant uh, development when Saudi Arabia said that they were going to just to talk to the rebels in Yemen. So obviously the Trump administration, at least behind uh, the, sorry, the Biden administration, at least behind the scenes is putting more pressure on Saudi Arabia. It's putting more pressure on the UAE. The UAE in fact, uh, in some ways just prevented Netanyahu from using it cynically in his own reelection campaign just now. He was supposed to, he was scheduled to take a trip, the first of an Israeli prime minister to the UAE just in the last two weeks, pre-elections for had to have a photo op uh, that was supposed to help him in the elections. Uh, despite the fact that the UAE is not a democracy, they understand very much why that move, uh, what that move was meant to do, and they prevented him from uh, from visiting. And they said that they will wait, uh, not only that they would wait until after the elections, they also said, their foreign minister also said that 
their agreement to normalize relationship with Israel is an agreement with a state and not with a person. Um, it kind of emphasizing that this is not Netanyahu's agreement with them, it's the agreement that they have with the state of Israel. And that was a very significant move on the part of the UAE that, um, that also um, hurt Netanyahu before the elections. Uh, could we bring Iran into this conversation for a minute? Uh, certainly, the Trump administration was quite hostile to Iran. They withdrew from the Iran nuclear agreement. And that certainly also plays into uh, the concerns of the other Arab states, many of which are anti-Iranian. Uh, with now the Biden administration, are there gonna be changes in that dynamic um, in terms of both American relationships with Iran, but also uh, sort of inter-Mideast relationships? Will those perhaps change? Yes. So then they're all connected because one of the reasons that the Gulf states that were normalizing relationships with Israel were doing that was also to fend off Iran. They have to decide who is their bigger enemy, Israel or Iran. And in that case, during Trump's presidency, they decided that Iran is their bigger enemy. It could be now during Biden's presidency that that will shift um, until Trump withdrew from the JCPOA, from the nuclear agreement that the United States and five other countries signed with Iran um, in uh, 2015. Until Trump's administration withdrew from it, both Iran, uh, Iran was compliant uh, with the agreement and most Israeli security analysts and generals um, were uh, adamant that Iran had been compliant compliant. They were happy with the results of this agreement. So the criticism of this agreement was oftentimes used for political reasons. Uh, there was really no evidence that Iran wasn't compliant. Uh, and the attack of this agreement was also based on kind of on, on what it was not, uh, which it was never meant to do. Uh, Biden ran on a, a campaign that promised to return the United States to the JCPOA. Um, uh, he was part of an administration that pushed for the JCPOA, for the agreement with Iran. Uh, and a lot of the people around him are people who were involved in that agreement. Um, however, since uh, Trump withdrew the United States from that agreement, Iran, after a, a while, also uh, started to... to um, uh, not to abide by the agreement, obviously, because now the United States had withdrew. So it complicates the returning into the agreement. And right now we're in a little bit of a stalemate of how do we bring both Iran and the United States together again without either of them looking like they're um, making concessions that are too big to stomach. Uh, and a lot of that narrative has to do actually with domestic politics much more than international politics. Um, domestic politics in both countries. In both countries, exactly. So Biden needs to kind of demonstrate. And, and you know, one of the, uh, it's interesting that there's, I think I counted maybe at least four, maybe there's five or six, you know, in addition to legislation, but there's letters that are circulating around the House and the Senate, letters that are bipartisan letters um, by uh, Democrats and Republicans that are trying to get signatures um, to um, uh, 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 declaring that Biden should or shouldn't do certain things when it comes to Iran. Um, there's definitely a buzz around the House and around the Senate around what's happening with Iran, 
Iran is going for an, to an election in June. So some of that has to do with the speediness and with the kind of the speed with which this needs to be done. Some lawmakers are saying, and some in Biden's administration are saying, we need to get this done before June. Um, my hunch is that to a certain extent, Biden has been kind of, has, hasn't been very outspoken about this because there are still members of his team that have not been confirmed by the Senate that he would like to see confirmed, members of his security team. Um, and, uh, and if he takes a stand and they are then forced to take a stand in their Senate hearings on the Iran issue, uh, then that might present a problem. It's a very controversial issue, including for some Democrats. So, uh, but Jewish groups, by far Jewish groups in the United States um, uh, that are kind of, uh, 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 represent the larger part of the Jewish community in the United States, support the United States unconditionally returning to the Iran uh, nuclear agreements, uh, and then maybe pursuing further negotiations after that, adding more aspects to that agreement. That agreement was only meant to halt Iran's development of nuclear weapons. Right. But there's certainly political barriers in Iran as well, right? There, there are factions in Iran who never wanted the agreement to begin with, and they now, I would think, their hand might be a bit strengthened, given the fact that Trump, you know, withdrew. Uh, it, it'd probably be a very delicate uh, maneuver on the part of the Iranian uh, leadership to, in fact, uh, rejoin the agreement. Uh, yes, uh, yes, especially since there are elections coming up in Iran in June. Remember, Iran is a, um, it, it does have a parliament with competitive elections for parliament. Um, so it, it's, a, it's, it, it's a theocracy, but it does have, a, it's a constitutional theocracy. Um, and, uh, and yes, and this is obviously the relationship with the United States and the, and the, and the nuclear agreement are a very big topic uh, in Iran's elections. And, and uh, it, it seems to me that probably a lot of the negotiations are going to happen um, kind of very quietly and with a lot of knowledge of what uh, each, what the United States is facing domestically and what Iran is facing domestically. They want to save face. They don't want to show like that they're reversing everything that had happened before. But I just have to one, point one more thing out that Iran has actually been very restrained in the last couple of years. Trump administration had... Um, uh, assassinated an Iranian uh, general on Iraqi soil uh, a year ago. Iran has been very much aware of these different moves that were that might have been intended to um, to kind of to push it and maybe even to push it to act in a way that would uh, prevent a future returning to the deal. So some of their non-reaction to various um, uh, uh, to various poking by the United States, are a signal, I think, that they're very much interested in returning to the agreement. They, we just need to find a ladder back to that. Yeah, but your view is that probably the chances for accomplishing that would be better before these June elections. And afterwards, it might be more uncertain. Um, that is my understanding. It's hard to tell what's gonna happen in those elections there, but it seems, it seems to be that also, it, the Biden administration would like to see some movement before the June election. Well, Ruth, uh, we've just sort of touched on uh, issues. Uh, we'll have to have you back again and perhaps with our colleague uh, 
Gazim Zinzerchi, our other Mideast expert, to talk about some other issues in the Middle East. But this is a good preview and a very good review of these complex, uh, uh, the, the complex politics of Israel right now, uh, which will continue to be complex and need further analysis down the road. Uh, so thanks so much for being with us. And we look forward to having you back again, Professor Benartzi. Thank you. And thanks again to our listeners. Uh, please tell your friends about uh, Beyond Your Newsfeed. And thanks also to Chris Judge of the Providence College uh, Office of uh, Marketing and Communications, who is the producer of this podcast. Thank you.